Welcome, everyone. I'm Danielle Houston. I'm a benefits advisor at Propel Insurance, and this is my podcast, which has now been the live podcast. It's the checkup. And this is the first episode of a series that I'm really excited to share with all of you. What COVID has taught me, certainly, is that the world really can change in an instant. And I've been so encouraged and proud to be part of a community and an organization that just keeps asking the questions, how can we help? So this series is designed to do this. There are a number of people who have joined us today, including many of my Propel colleagues. And, you know, we're all learning together and we're learning with you. So without any further ado, because they're real experts in today are the experts from Zoom Care who are with us. They are part of our community and they are looking for these ways and have been talking about these ways of how can we help people get back to work and do it in a way that keeps everyone safe and healthy. So we have Dr. Eric Vanderlip. He is the Chief Medical Officer of Zoom Care. And he's going to talk about how do we maintain a healthy workforce in this age of COVID-19. Getting back to work has, you know, near-term near complications and long-term. This is not a short endeavor by any stretch. Um, so how do we navigate all of that? He's going to talk mostly around that maintaining of a healthy workforce. Sarah Fish has joined us today, and she's Zoom's Director of Compliance and Privacy. She's going to talk about how do we reopen safely and also staying compliant. That legal landscape is changing, and we're going to have another update around that here in three weeks. Finally, Thad Mick, who is the Vice President of Pharmaceutical Programs and Diagnostic Services, is going to talk about how do we use COVID-19 carrier and antibody tests to guide that workplace recovery. I'm going to go get my own antibody test just to see how it, uh, see if it works and see if I can perhaps share my plasma in our quest for um, better health and finding um, some good health solutions. So with that, I want to turn it over to our first speaker, Dr. Vanderlip. Eric, kick it off for us. Hi, Danielle, and uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, and it's uh, fun to see this uh, talk come to fruition because we've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks here as we were working with some employers who are really struggling with their workforces, trying to figure out how to keep everybody safe, uh, getting back to business. And um, we thought, gosh, we have a lot of ideas around that. And um, we're really delighted to be able to share that uh, with, um, with you all today. So um, thanks for joining in this afternoon. And hopefully we can make this a fun and informative um, session. Um, we are going to start off by just reviewing some of the basic facts around coronavirus. Um, and I think in the midst of all of this, it's sometimes uh, lost amongst us. Um, just some of the basic epidemiology. How is it spread? Um, how does this thing get around? What do the symptoms look like? And how do we build a resilient community um, and a resilient workforce um, even before we get back to work and get back into some of the details later on? So that's what we're going to start with today. Um, and it's important to note that um, primarily uh, coronavirus, um, the, the virus that causes uh, COVID-19, um, is spread 
mainly through droplet, uh, small droplets that are aerosolized as somebody's coughing or sneezing in the workplace. Um, and these droplets, uh, for a brief period of time, uh, go into the air, uh, maybe 30 minutes, an hour or so, and then fall and land on surfaces, um, and then can live on those hard surfaces, especially for up to a day or two, um, and softer, porous surfaces uh, for a couple of hours, potentially. Um, the majority of spread is through these droplets. Um, somebody touches them or inhales them, and then um, by touching them, introduces them to their lips, their mouth, their nose, their eyes, their upper airways, and uh, the virus uh, gains a foothold in the upper airway primarily. Um, and that's uh, the main way in which it's spread. Um, <clears throat> and when we look at the way the virus is spread, especially in workplaces, uh, we see it mainly in groups and clusters of people um, that are primarily tightly or organized or tightly grouped together. Um, it's spread at dinner parties or people are uh, potentially sharing things, utensils, other stuff like that. Um, and, um, and that's the main mechanism by which it spreads. Um, and because of that, uh, by and large, even in healthcare settings, we mainly work under what's known as droplet precautions um, when we're working to prevent the spread of coronavirus. These are similar type precautions to the way we treat the spread of the flu, um, because it looks like most of the time it's spread that way. Um, and I should note that uh, the ability to spread coronavirus is mainly contingent upon the amount of virus in your upper airways as you cough or sneeze. Um, and so uh, when we look at the amount of virus in somebody's upper airways compared to the timing and onset of their symptoms, there's some interesting patterns that emerge. The first is that uh, after exposure to coronavirus, let's say that day z that's day zero, um, I'll get to the symptoms in a second. Um, let's say that uh, that's day zero. The average onset of symptoms is at day five after exposure to coronavirus. And when we measure the viral load or the amount of viruses in somebody's upper airways, it usually starts to become detectable about 36 to 48 hours before the onset of symptoms. And then the majority of people who develop a clinically notable infection will go on to develop symptoms at around five days. Um, and those symptoms will persist for around 10 days on average. Um, <clears throat> And the peak of the viral detection load is right at the onset of symptoms and 24 to 48 hours after the onset of symptoms. And that's really important to, to consider for a couple of things, mainly because there's a huge worry about the threat of asymptomatic spread, that I can transmit coronavirus to others when I don't exhibit symptoms. But it looks like from our best epidemiology that though that is a potential, and especially in those first 24, 36, 48 hours prior to the development of symptoms, the most infectious time that somebody has is probably right after they develop symptoms. Um, so now is a good time. Let's talk about what symptoms uh, look like for coronavirus. And I think as most everybody knows, it's very similar to the common cold. Um, and so fever, chills, cough, shortness of breath and difficulty breathing are the cardinal symptoms that are the most prevalent in coronavirus. We see fever in up to about 80% of people who uh, have coronavirus. And that fever is a good fever. It's typically well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, typically 102, 103, or 104. And we've been testing, when we've been testing folks and correlating their subjective symptoms of a fever and then actually measuring their temperature, we found that it was much more likely that somebody would test positive when they had a positive fever of 101, 102, 103. 
Though it's possible to have coronavirus and be able to detect it without the presence of fever, fever really is the cardinal symptom and one of the leading most prevalent um, symptoms in coronavirus. Then there's a whole host of other uh, nonspecific symptoms too, and all these are rather nonspecific, but that includes fatigue, muscle or body aches, headache, uh, sore throat, congestion, runny nose, nausea or vomiting, even some GI symptoms like diarrhea uh, or loose stools. Um, interestingly, one thing that was reported early that wasn't really picked up on until a little bit later was this sense of a new loss of taste or smell. And that also seems to be pretty specific to coronavirus. These are all the cardinal symptoms of coronavirus, but it's important to note it's very nonspecific. None of these will point directly to coronavirus. And when this thing really started for us in the U.S. back in late February, mid to late February, it was very difficult for us to tell the difference between coronavirus and the flu. Um, and to that end, when we do symptomatic testing for people, we are only able to detect, to detect coronavirus in about 2 to 5% of the population who are having symptoms, excuse me, I said asymptomatic testing, but I mean, when we do symptomatic testing for people, we really only pick it up in about two to 5% of the population because the symptoms are just so nonspecific. Um, moving on. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, how to prevent coronavirus. Um, and we're gonna talk some about workplace engineering controls, et cetera, but I think it's worth noting that Preventing it, preventing exposure in the first place is probably worth a lot more to your workplace than uh, testing and identification once it's already on the premise, um, premises. So, uh, so let's go and talk about some of the things that can help you prevent uh, uh, the spread of coronavirus in your workplace. Um, so number one is control of the physical environment. Um, and I think it's really important to note that there's three main things that you can do um, in terms of controlling that physical environment. The first is what we think of our, as engineering controls. And in essence, this is designing the workplace to functionally limit the spread of those small little droplets between individuals. So you can imagine this is barriers and why some, some folks put up those plexiglass barriers. Um, this is also the design and trafficking of your workspace so that there's clear influx and outflux of traffic into the in and out of the workspace. Um, like for instance, even at our base camp, um, we have kind of now a one-way traffic corridor through the bathrooms and to the bathrooms and out of that um, that will limit direct exposure that employees have to really get within that six feet radius with which most of these droplets will fall when somebody sneezes or coughs. So those engineering controls are really important. It's also important to consider your airflow in your workspace. Um, and if the workspace has air filters, HEPA installed air filters are better than just generic air filters and should be sufficient to filter out viral particles spread or picked up throughout the HVAC system. It's also good to have common stations uh, where people can perform hand hygiene particularly. Um, and then through your engineering controls, supporting that social distancing of around six feet between individuals because it's much less likely for, uh, for those small droplets to spread beyond six feet. It's, it's possible and it's been reported, but it's far less likely. Um, and then finally, periodic cleaning, especially of those hard surfaces where the virus can persist for up to 24 to 48 hours is especially important. And so scheduling more frequent cleanings to knock down the viral load as it's around your workplace will be really important. Um, and that's in, in handles, door handles, uh, bathroom sinks, bathrooms, uh, light, 
light switches, really anything that somebody could use their hands on. Um, <clears throat> uh, next, next slide. Doing great, Kate, thank you so much. Um, uh, and then um, it's also important that um, employee behaviors be taken into account. Um, and obviously there's some simple ones like hand washing. And I think with hand washing and masking and the combination of those two things, that can um, help support 90-ish percent of your workplace control. So good hand hygiene is essential. This is scrubbing your hands with soap and water for two rounds of happy birthday, um, and reminding your employees and setting up those kinds of engineering controls to remind your employees to do these behaviors, especially when they're around others or touching things um, in common workspaces. Masking is also really vital. Um, masking can be in twofold. Um, one is with official personal protective equipment that you can buy. Surgical masks are um, efficient and uh, sufficient uh, to limit the spread of viral particles from the upper airway. Um, but a face covering that's at least two to three ply cloth uh, mesh or something like that to cover both the nose and the mouth uh, we recommended our base camp, um, especially if people are going to be within or anticipate uh, close proximal uh, contact to each other within that six foot boundary. Uh, we require our employees to be masked uh, when they're going to be around others within that six feet boundary, or even when they anticipate it or they're up and away from their own personal kind of hygiene bubble um, at their workspace. Um, and also, I should mention the physical distancing. Um, like at ZoomCare, we've set up uh, stations that are at least six feet apart um, and have engineering controls between them to help limit the spread. Um, and then uh, later on in this discussion, Thad's going to talk about um, the most up-to-date knowledge we have about screening and testing uh, for both actual live virus and antibodies. Um, and then finally, I'd be really remiss if uh, we didn't talk about building a resilient workplace. Even if you have a perfectly engineered and controlled workspace, um, your employees could still get exposure outside of the workspace. Um, and that's arguably as likely when they're at the grocery store as it is when they're at your crowded workspace. Um, and so it's really important that we not forget some of the basics around healthcare. Um, and this is the time to kind of knock off the dust of that employee assistance program um, so that you can build a resilient workforce that can cope with the stress that they're managing as we've all been undergoing in coronavirus land. Um, and when they can cope with stress better, they'll be more uh, engaged, they'll be uh, more primed to take care of themselves better, um, do healthy lifestyle habits like exercising and diet, um, and good dietary uh, factors um, that all will help to limit their risk if they are exposed to coronavirus down the road. It's probably really important to note that those who have really bad outcomes and are hospitalized, which is high cost emergency utilization or intensive care utilization, are those with really suboptimally controlled chronic illnesses. Those include things like immunosuppressant uh, diseases that suppress their immune system, and that's like um, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, things like that, but also diabetes um, and obesity are major risk factors for bad outcomes with coronavirus. And then I think it goes without saying that any kind of underlying lung or heart and lung disease can really also predict bad outcomes with coronavirus. So it's, it's essential to optimally control those chronic conditions through good lifestyle habits, uh, behavior choices, 
And that means building a resilient community um, within your workforce that can really uh, bounce back after they're exposed. Um, <clears throat> and I think it's also important to mention uh, the importance of smoking cessation um, because anybody who's smoking is uh, also going to have a more difficult time overcoming this virus uh, down the road. Um, and then finally, your employees don't live in a bubble. Oftentimes they live in the environment of their home and uh, making sure that they have good home supports, um, especially if they're working from home, good environmental controls at home and uh, ways to help manage stressors with working remotely uh, that can come along uh, with the new age that we're living in and coronavirus. So um, I think uh, those are some big things that really aren't talked about when we talk about testing and hygiene and engineering controls all the basics we forget about in coronavirus, and it's really essential to remember some of those basics and supporting your workforce to get access to basic healthcare services, including behavioral health services as we all cope through this. Right. So is now a good time for a couple questions for you? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So if an employer has a temperature checker, you know, at the door for arriving employees. What's the temperature where employees should be sent home? Good question. It's 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, 100.4. Um, in the healthcare environment, we are using a slightly lower threshold of 100.0 um, to screen employees. Um, there's a widely noted transmission of uh, COVID within the healthcare workspace. And so we're trying to be just a tad bit more cautious um, within a healthcare environment. But for regular work environments, 100.4 should suffice. Okay. Now, early on, there was a lot we were learning pretty rapidly, a lot of changing information that we would hear from the CDC about symptoms and who is mostly at risk. Do you think that information has kind of slowed down? Are we at a place where we kind of have our arms around it or do you expect a lot more changes? Um, I think with coronavirus, the one thing we can continue to expect is change. Um, and yet at the same time, we've pretty well defined the clinical syndrome. There's a lot of other fringe things out there like COVID toes and stuff like that. Um, and new sequelae that we're learning after people are diagnosed with coronavirus in terms of late onset um, immunocompromised states, kids with um, inflammatory responses that affect their heart and other systems. Uh, that we're still kind of getting our hands around as we um, learn more about the after effects of coronavirus. But certainly in the midst of it, um, the syndrome is pretty well defined. Okay. Any ideas why folks with diabetes or those who are obese are more of a risk factor than maybe some of the other groups that we initially heard about? Not yet. Um, I think that some of the good science around that is going to emerge eventually. There's a lot of hypotheses. Um, some hypotheses include the way that the coronavirus comes into the body's system through the respiratory tract, the way it gains entry into cells, can be potentially affected by some of the medications used in um, conditions like diabetes and high blood pressure. But those are theories, and there could be a wide number of other possibilities out there that uh, may explain some of these associations. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, there's still a lot Very to learn. Um, and I think as we learn more, we'll continue to update uh, our knowledge and the way we treat it and manage it. 
fair enough. So we should all be prepared for more change to come and to just be resilient and keep moving with it, right? Yeah, I think I think this is why it's um, really uh, important because it's such a fast-moving thing to have a system or a health system that can assist your employees with really staying on top of their risks um, and managing it throughout the course of this pandemic. Yeah. Good, good advice. Thank you. Yeah. Good questions. And folks can certainly keep the questions. They can keep them circulating through chat. Uh, I've had a couple of text messages. So uh, however you want to send over a question, feel free. And I think um, we are going to transition to hearing from Sarah around compliance. Hi. Um, so we're going to go over workplace um, policies. Next slide. So um, COVID-19 return work policies. So basically, um, employers should implement and update as necessary a written COVID-19 plan that includes policies for sick leave for COVID-19 related illnesses, infectious control measures, and return to work. Make sure your policies are specific to your workplace. Just don't copy and paste um, ones that are not catered to your business. Um, it's okay to go and find those policies and procedures, but, you know, make sure that they are specifically to your business and not a carbon copy of somebody else's. Identify all areas and job tasks with potential exposures to COVID-19 and include control measures to eliminate or reduce such exposures. Also, talk with your employees about plan changes and seek their input. Additionally, collaborate with employees, and if you have unions, um, effectively communicate important COVID-19 information. Make sure the plan is posted and communicated to all employees. It's better to have employees in the input and certainly the unions um, before you set the plan in motion. Now let's take a deeper dive um, on each elements of the plan. Employers should implement and communicate non-punitive emergency sick leave policies for COVID-19 related illness, including actively encouraging sick leave sick employees to stay home. Ensure that sick leave policies are flexible and consistent with public health guidance and that employees again are aware of these policies. Employees who have been sick with COVID-19, the ADA allows for requiring a doctor's note, but as a practical matter, you might not be get one, you know, because medical facilities are extremely busy and might not be able to provide the documentation in a timely manner. Most people with COVID-19 have a mild uh, illness and can recover at home without medical care and can follow the CDC recommendations to determine when to discontinue home isolation and return to work. For those employees who have been exposed to the virus and um, may need to you know, have additional precautions um, or exposed to the virus at work, inform the employees of their exposure um, in the workplace, but main confidentiality is required by ADA. So an easy way to say is you've been exposed by somebody you came in contact. You don't have to say a client, don't say the name, definitely don't say an employee in the employee name. <laughs> you keep it really confidential. They don't need to know who. Um, when we get to contact tracing, um, that will be the government in your job to kind of um, work through that. Workplaces can follow current um, public health recommendations and instruct potentially exposed employees to help um, to stay home, telework if possible, and self-monitor for symptoms. Um, again, uh, as Eric went through, employers should develop and communicate infection control measures that you have put in place. 
also develop um, and maintain a plan for the regular cleanings to reduce the risk of exposure to COVID-19. And then return to work. Um, establish policies and practices for social distancing. Um, you know, as Eric went through, alter your workspace to help workers and customers maintain social distancing and physical separate, um, physically separate employees from each other and from customers when possible. Um, following new guidance from the EEOC, it is appropriate for an employer to mandate COVID-19 testing before an employee's However, the policy must be non-discriminatory and consistent. Employers can set up an employee health benefit and or an occupational health program to send employees for testing before returning to work. Big takeaways are um, make sure policies are non-punitive, written policies and um, Oops, frequency communicated. Make sure the policies are applied in a consistent, non-discriminatory um, discriminatory manner. Um, that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, if you vary anything, and it could be just as simple as letting one person do something a little bit different than the other, it can be perceived different. And that's where you, things get to go sideways with policies. So just make sure that, you know, you, you write them down, you post them, and you frequently communicate them. Okay, next slide. Um, so state overview. Um, it's, the guidance could take hours and hours. I'm sure all of you have been through a lot of the guidance. Washington and Oregon are similar um, with a phased approach. They kind of um, did a pact um, during you know, the beginning with California, and they decided to do this phased approach. Each one is doing a little bit variation of different, but... Read the particular guidance of what your business falls under to understand the policies and procedures that you will need to create to open. Both state opening plans are very prescriptive. Washington is a little bit more prescriptive. Um, as anybody in Washington knows, Inslee's a little bit more prescriptive than Brown. Be patient and keep of the, um, abreast of the changing guidance. It does change all the time. So keep looking, making sure that you know, you are doing the correct procedures at the time. Just, just like us, the government is learning best practices and pulling back guidance and putting back guidance. Understand that if COVID-19 um, cases rise again, which there's a high likelihood, um, the pres prescriptive state limit, um, there is one for each state, there's a high likelihood the mandatory shutdowns will return back to essential businesses only and have mitigation plans to place um, in place to able to wind those back down quickly. As for essential businesses, have your COVID-19 plan, including all your policies and procedures um, discussed um, previously and clearly communicate to the all employees. Slide three. So um, the feds. So there are more acronyms than you guys have probably ever wanted to see in federal agencies. And, um, you know, we're going to go over ADA, CDC, EEOC. So the rule of thumb for employers and employees should follow the guidance of, from the CDC as well as your local state health authorities on how to best spread, um, best to slow the spread of this disease and protect workers and customers. The ADA or EEOC does not interfere with employers following advice from the CDC and other um, public health authorities on appropriate steps to taking related to the workplace, okay? 
So I did want to give some specific guidance that, you know, might be helpful, kind of a Q&A. One of the big ones that I'm seeing, you know, and I've gotten even asked about is during the pandemic, may an employer require its employees to wear personal protective equipment? There's a lot of, um, you know, kind of fervor about, you know, at ADA, I don't have to wear my mask. Employers may require employees to wear PPE during a pandemic. It's actually allowed. However, when an employee with a disability needs a related reasonable accommodation under ADA, like non-latex gloves. Um, as for a face covering, um, I'll let Eric kind of talk about that, but there's not too many, you know, there's a lot of face coverings that you could have to, um, you know, limit any um, ADA concerns. Um, so there's that. And then... Um, Another quick question that I'm getting a lot is, um, you know, during a pandemic, how much information can an employer request from employees who are feeling ill or sick at work? Employers may ask employees who feel, uh, who are reporting ill. So if I call in and say I'm not feeling well, you can ask the um, symptoms, symptoms to determine if they have COVID or 19 or not, or if they might have, you can't determine that. And then during a pandemic, may an employer take its employees' temperatures, determine whether they have a fever. As Eric, you know, indicated, we can. The big thing is, is um, make sure that if you are logging or if, make sure that to see if you need policies or procedures to log the um, temperature or the symptoms. If you don't need that on a daily basis, don't log it because you're going to have to um, follow those confidentiality laws with the ADA. So that's about it. And I think that's a great, I mean, there are a couple of things in there that we are watching and also planning for. You know, you hit the nail on the head when you say that these federal pieces alone, we could spend hours on these. And we anticipate that things like ADA and involvements of labor unions are going to become very prevalent in this you know, post-COVID-19 workplace, mm -hmm. wanting to ensure that people stay healthy. So there's, you know, we're going to dive deep into that on week three. And you bring up a lot of good recommendations, like having that customized plan, you know, not doing a carbon copy. I like that a lot. Um, one of the questions, so it, and I'm just going to read it. It seems like Occasionally, federal CDC guidance is different from state guidance. As an example, in California, we're hearing that asymptomatic patients can be tested and are getting tested, but CDC guidelines suggest not testing most asymptomatic employees. So if the guidance is different, what should a what should a local employer follow? And that's really good advice too, because I think maybe the part B to that is we keep hearing things like suggestions, and yeah. we know that often things that are called suggestions really aren't. And later on, if you're not doing them, you're in trouble. So it's kind of a yeah. question. Yeah, definitely. So recommendations, CDC um, is not um, doesn't create laws. They basically um, give recommendations and then it's put into federal state law through the public health authorities. Um, so your public health authorities are your governing law and or state. And then you've got, you know, ADA, 
but they don't really get into the recommending of the asymptomatic testing. FDA might get their paws in there a little bit. Um, but I would um, state that, you know, look at it, make sure that you understand it, get legal guidance before you, um, you know, push employees or ask employees to do things that they might not want to do because we are in this gray zone um, as asymptomatic testing, it's new. So um, it's kind of like COVID-19 testing when we, we really didn't know until we do now that there is validity to it. So, you know, it, it might take a month or two to get, get that answer. And I would just kind of hold off on that and, and make that you're following the local guidelines. Okay. Danielle, I might also add, if, if I could for a second, that um, we've had a lot of challenges navigating this kind of um, um, differing opinions between state and local governments uh, at times around how to manage just infection control within a healthcare setting, for instance. Um, and typically, we, we've defaulted to more state or local governing uh, authorities, um, when, uh, especially if their guidance is more restrictive than federal guidelines. Um, and sometimes we've found that in this, uh, state and local authorities will have much more uh, nuanced guidance because there's a breakout in the community, um, and they can provide more more. Um, specific guidance uh, to your surroundings and um, are generally a little bit uh, more on it in terms of um, pro providing on-the-spot on the guidance. Um, so we found, uh, in general, the local health authorities to be as, if not more, um, <clears throat> authoritative at times than um, federal ones, especially if there's a differing of opinion. Yep, and follow your local before following CDC. That's usually the kind of um, route you want to go. If there is a prescriptive from your local and you don't agree with that, then question the local authorities on that. But, you know, um, you can't really pick and choose. There's, you know, they do have um, jurisdiction over this area. So the local authorities. Okay. Any other questions? Really good point. Also, the local authorities are really on top of local supply chains. Um, and some of the recommendations can vary dramatically based off of the local uh, community-based access to supplies of personal protective equipment and testing supplies. Interesting note. Actually, I don't think that note would make most people feel much better that maybe, maybe testing's not being recommended in your neighborhood because we don't have it versus whether or not we need it, right? Yeah, question of the hour or the the last quarter, I guess. All right, viral and antibody testing. Um, gosh, this is also a really quickly changing space that we're hearing a lot about. So I am anxious to hear what Thad will share with us around this. Yeah, thank you, Danielle. This is uh, perhaps one of the quickest changing areas of, uh, of COVID development. It seems like on a daily basis, um, the, the environment shifts. Uh, either there's a new test uh, being released or some new guidance from FDA or CDC. Um, there, there is um, a lot of change for sure in this area. Um, our current testing capacity has grown uh, quite dramatically since we first started testing back in late February, early March. In fact, this last week we hit uh, a record of almost 450,000 tests completed in one day. So almost half a million, which is phenomenal considering just three months ago, uh, we were testing very few, uh, if any, individuals for this. It may seem like testing has uh, been slow to develop, uh, and at, at times it seems that way uh, as, you know, tests are released in the market and then pulled back. 
Um, uh, but we do have a, uh, a significant effort uh, nationwide going towards creating testing supplies and, and different testing technologies that will help us get through this. Um, if we compare last week's uh, numbers of 450,000 new tests in one day to just a month ago, a month ago uh, we hit records of about 200,000 tests a day. So it seems like every four weeks at this point we're doubling our testing capacity. If we look out at uh, current guidance and, and uh, current studies that suggest where our testing capacity needs to be, it ranges anywhere from about 5 million to upwards of 15 million tests a day. So if we use our 450,000 tests uh, that we completed uh, per day this last week and uh, fast forward, we should get to that 5 million uh, level in about three months, uh, just in time for the, the fall uh, flu season to hit again. Uh, so I'm, I'm confident that um, you know, we'll, our testing capacity is growing and uh, we'll be able to meet the needs of, of, our, um, of our communities uh, overall. Um, if we look at infection rates, the infection rates vary widely depending on the geographic region. Uh, we've had over 15.1 million tests completed in the U.S. to date. Uh, and about 1.8 million of those tests uh, have uh, been positive for COVID-19. Uh, that's about a 12% uh, overall positive rate if we consider our, our national statistics. When we contrast that to our regional experience, in Washington, we've had a little over 300,000 tests to date uh, with about 20,000 positive cases or about a 6% positive rate which is far less than, than some of the national um, uh, uh, statistics that we've seen. Uh, and then if we look at Oregon, we've had about 115,000 tests and about 4,000 positive cases, or about a 3.5% overall positive rate. Uh, now, if we look at some of the variability between our own regional experience and uh, that of some of the national experience, um, there's a lot of factors that go into that. You know, certainly the, the West Coast, Oregon and Washington were one of the first states to uh, issue stay-at-home orders along with California. Uh, we've been in uh, social distancing for many uh, weeks now, several months now, uh, when compared to some of uh, the other uh, regional areas of, of the country. Um, uh, and then we have um, public health that's uh, very actively engaged in uh, ensuring that the governor's orders are, uh, are followed through with. So uh, I think a lot of those factors really lead to some of the differences of, of where we are today here regionally compared to uh, some of the national rates. Next slide, please. If we consider current testing uh, technologies, we can uh, look at these in, in two different uh, lights. One is diagnostic testing, uh, which uh, really screens for active infection. Uh, we have two testing technologies that really support this a molecular framework uh, and an antigen framework. Molecular framework really looks for um, uh, viral RNA uh, or, or DNA particles uh, that identifies the specific virus uh, within the host. Uh, antigen uh, tests, on the other hand, look for specific proteins of that virus within the host. Uh, the other testing uh, uh, modality that we look at is past infection testing or, or testing of antibodies. Uh, today, uh, there are three antibodies that are screened predominantly through this testing platform, IgA, IgM, which usually develop early on uh, in infection, and then IgG, uh, which has uh, generally a, a sustained 
uh, overall uh, level within the blood uh, for a longer period of time. Now it's important to call out that uh, these are two very different testing uh, modalities. Uh, looking again for current infection, those individuals that may um, have the potential to pass on the infection uh, to those around them, and individuals uh, that have had a past infection which now have antibodies, uh, and they are no longer actively infected, uh, generally speaking. Next slide, please. We look at some of the benefits and, um, and limitations of the different testing platforms that we have. Um, you know, we, we can evaluate our diagnostic tests uh, in a couple different flavors. Uh, we have point of care testing, uh, which are usually our, our rapid tests. Uh, we've heard a lot about the Abbott ID Now test uh, that, that's been available on site at the point of care. Uh, the president uh, had it uh, in one of his press conferences <laughs> and was playing with it. Uh, we have the Cepheid gene expert. And the latest addition to point-of-care testing is the Quetel Sophia 2. Uh, these, these testing platforms uh, are generally very quick, uh, providing results within 20 to 30 minutes. However, the trade-off uh, that you have is, um, you know, those quick results uh, often are limited in, in some of the accuracy. And it's not necessarily a result of the limited accuracy of the test itself, but a number of factors that play into that, such as user error or sample collection error uh, or, or elements um, that are, are just innate to that rapid uh, sample collection and, and testing process. Um, these are uh, molecular tests and antigen tests, so the sensitivity and specificity are pretty good overall. Um, um, but there is uh, some, some trade-off in the accuracy, generally speaking. Um, other uh, molecular tests that we have available are provided through uh, the large reference laboratories such as LabCorp and Quest. Uh, these, these reference labs have a number of uh, instruments and uh, manufacturers that provide uh, testing uh, for active disease and molecular testing. Uh, the real trade-off with these is, um, is the time it takes to develop the results. Uh, generally speaking, you're, you're getting results back in two to three days. Our experience has been on the, the shorter side of that. We work with LabCorp, and, and our results uh, for active screening have, have usually come back in about 48 hours from the time of sample collection. But we have heard uh, reports um, as long as a week, a uh, week out uh, in some cases, especially early on as testing uh, first started ramping up. Um, one other just uh, uh, note here on uh, overall testing, and, and that's, um, you know, one of the limitations that we've had um, across all testing platforms. You know, every manufacturer has launched testing and, and tried to provide to the market the most uh, accurate, reliable test uh, available. Uh, however, uh, as a nation, we've really suffered from a lot of supply constraints. Uh, whether it's constraints uh, on the testing supplies themselves, the swabs, or the transport media, or the reagents, uh, it's been difficult for many manufacturers to keep up with some of the demand and secure a, a large enough supply chain to ensure that the testing is available to, to all those individuals that need it. That's one area, no matter what manufacturer um, uh, is out there, that, that we've really suffered from uh, on a national level. Uh, the other element uh, that I want to surface is really the clinical utility of testing. Uh, we've, we've talked some about antibody testing. Uh, I think you started off, Danielle, uh, uh, indicating that you wanted to go get your uh, antibodies tested for COVID-19, uh, to maybe uh, donate your plasma. Um, you know, there's, there's a big uh, clinical debate about the utility of, of antibody testing overall. Uh, 
The antibody testing that we have available today is qualitative testing, uh, meaning it's just a positive negative indicator and doesn't identify the level of antibodies circulating in the blood. Uh, nor do we really have enough data, enough information to uh, really be able to determine whether or not antibody presence for COVID-19 uh, uh, confers lasting immunity for the individual that, that uh, has those antibodies. Uh, we don't know the, the duration uh, of the antibodies, how long they last in the system. We don't know the durability, and we certain don't, certainly don't know whether or not it will prevent future infection. There are some uh, early indicators that um, uh, perhaps it will. However, I think we need a lot more data to, to really definitively um, make that determination. Next slide, please. So what to anticipate next on the testing horizon? Wow, I'm going to have to get out my crystal ball here. <laughs> because things have changed so quickly. I mean, uh, a month ago, Dr. Vanderlip and I uh, were up in, in Seattle uh, doing testing uh, for uh, saliva samples, thinking that we'd have a, a home saliva kit available within weeks. Um, but uh, now, um, you know, it, there, there's a lot, a lot of, changing and shifting sands in the testing market. Two weeks ago, FDA issued guidance on antibody testing, pulling hundreds of manufacturers from the market, require them, requiring them to go through uh, the emergency use authorization process uh, to continue to market their antibody tests and requiring stringent guidelines for sensitivity and specificity. Uh, so a, a lot has changed in the market uh, overall. Um, I think as we look out and, and see, you know, what we can anticipate uh, going forward, uh, we'll likely see a lot of alternate sites, uh, a, lot of, a lot of alternate sample collection sites um, being initiated. Uh, initially, we, we had just the nasal pharyngeal uh, samples being collected as, as really the gold standard, where we have, uh, you've seen it all on TV, where you have the long Q-tip going up the, the nose, back into the throat of the individual, the gag, and, is, is not a very comfortable procedure and does require medical personnel to be up close uh, uh, and in contact with, with the patient. Uh, now we've seen transitions to oral pharyngeal samples, you know, swabs in the throat, uh, anterior nares or nasal swabs, and now uh, even saliva is, um, is being identified as a, a good testing medium for, um, for COVID-19 screening. We see Rutgers University uh, launch and uh, have an approved uh, uh, slide kit uh, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, we'll likely also see home testing becoming more prevalent. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the LabCorp Pixel uh, product being launched and available uh, to uh, uh, pr predominantly healthcare workers who are self-isolating at home uh, to do home testing uh, so that they may return to work at, uh, um, as quick as possible. Uh, we've also seen the Rutgers saliva test, which I just mentioned, uh, being approved for uh, home collection uh, just in, in the last couple of weeks. And we'll likely see this trend continue to evolve uh, as FDA becomes more comfortable with uh, many of the testing manufacturers out there as they're able to demonstrate the sensitivity, specificity of home sample collections, non-clinician collected samples. Uh, we'll likely see more and more home testing solutions um, uh, launching the market. We'll likely also see smart testing and screening protocols available. 
you can think of integrating uh, your smartphone uh, with uh, a questionnaire on a daily basis, uh, asking you uh, if you've experienced signs or symptoms. Um, and if you have, um, uh, recommending that you test. And if you test positive, uh, those apps being able to trace where you were uh, from a geo-tracking standpoint and really being able to uh, identify movement of the virus throughout communities. Uh, we've seen Microsoft and United Health uh, engage in a partnership uh, over the last uh, uh, couple months and uh, really close to launching products uh, to the market in addition to a number of other uh, tech companies uh, uh, really focused in this area. And finally, uh, if I had to really look at my crystal ball and, and rub it hard, uh, I would say that, you know, potentially we could see lateral flow testing similar to a, a pregnancy test. Uh, available where we take a small blood sample and actually screen for active disease. We're a long way from getting there today. Uh, and there, there are a number of milestones that need to be achieved before we, we can get there and get uh, testing in the hands of a broad community. But I think we're taking steps in, in the right direction. And uh, within the next several months, uh, we may see the FDA uh, becoming comfortable to the extent uh, in manufacturers uh, really doing their due diligence uh, and being able to provide these, uh, these testing modalities to the market. Next slide, please. And I recognize that we're running close on time, so uh, just a, a final note here on, on employer testing and guidance. Um, uh, as Eric and Sara had mentioned, um, uh, you know, really the, the employers uh, have, have a lot of tools available to them today, uh, really from a, a control mechanism, controlling the environment, uh, setting up processes and, and protocols that are specific uh, to, to their employer location to help keep uh, their staff safe. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there is no one-size-fits-all testing program or, or screening program available. Uh, nothing available today that we can uh, say is plug and play for the broad employer market. Um, however, you know, uh, developing controls, uh, a control environment, uh, both administrative controls and workplace controls, uh, and isolating uh, those individuals that um, are symptomatic and uh, sending them for testing and screening early on is perhaps the, the, the best way that employers can protect their workforce and, and protect their environment. Um, then of course, um, you know, work for uh, work with um, uh, brokers and, and uh, consultants to identify uh, what tools are available to really meet the needs of their individual workforce. Uh, that, that's perhaps uh, the best guidance we can provide at this point. With that, I'll turn it over to questions. And we do have a couple. Um, this question is a great one for Sarah. Um, Ellie is asking their hospitality industry employer, they are going to be temperature checking employees and keeping a log. Um, are they subject to HIPAA laws and compliance? Um, so HIPAA, so hospitality, so HIPAA um, wouldn't go in there because they're not your patient, but you are um, subject to occupational health and OSHA regulations. So work with your um, OC health team, or if you don't have one, um, kind of look into that. Also look into why you're keeping those records. Is there a reason really? Um, you know, there really isn't a reason. You really want to check and see if those people are have a temperature. If they don't, then they can go to work. Does that make sense? Um, so just just look into it. But you do have to um, 
treat those as a medical file for occupational health. Okay. Um, this next question, I'm not sure if this would be maybe Eric or Sad, but how do you feel about segregating the congregate care infection rates from Washington's general population infection rate when determining our ability to move along for the state's reopening continuum? That's a big question, too. That's a good one. I can take that, Danielle. I've been kind of pondering that as uh, we've been working through the remaining uh, slides in the slide deck. And I think um, uh, we're not the state of Washington and don't set policy statewide. Um, but I would say that I think that we're starting to see some emerging uh, differences in how we manage different at-risk populations. And we certainly see different recommendations for testing come out in nursing home populations as opposed to the general population. Like for instance, the CDC is suggesting that even asymptomatic nursing home residents, once infection has been identified at a nursing home, be, be tested because of high-risk exposure. Um, and they have, they're obviously it's a significant uh, risk for complications it, were they to contract coronavirus. So, um, <clears throat> so um, in certain settings, we're seeing different policies emerge. Um, and there's a chance that we could uh, choose to siphon off certain segments of the population to look at infection uh, rates there um, and use those to differentiate how we manage a reopening policy. But that's for the state government to decide and uh, people with higher degrees in public health than my lowly master's of public health degree uh, uh, to weigh in on, I'd say. Mm -hmm. uh, Thad, specifically for you, you talked about Zoom care using a swab-based test that takes 48 hours. Why isn't Zoom care using that saliva test or a home collection or rapid results yet? Yeah, great question. So um, it really comes down to supply. Uh, the Rutgers um, lab that is approved for home collected saliva uh, samples uh, just does not have the capacity at this point or the supply uh, to make those available in the broad general public. Uh, we want to make certain that we're using a test that uh, we can consistently provide to our patients uh, that's accurate and reliable and uh, has, has a, a relatively quick turnaround uh, in, in comparison. Um, so, you know, more to come. Uh, we hope to be able to uh, initiate quicker uh, turnaround times for testing as testing opens up. I would also add that it's, it's really important that we have good tests, not just a test. Um, and it's uh, crucial sure. to not miss uh, potential infections. Um, that's the most important thing. Yeah. And some rapid test kits uh, that were initially rolled out have really been questioned in terms of their sensitivity um, and ability to detect uh, coronavirus. And our own internal sampling with saliva was fraught with difficulty, um, and hence we didn't roll it out. Um, so when you're really looking at testing in the testing landscape, emergency use, use authorization from the FDA means the manufacturer has brought to the FDA their own internal sampling and testing criteria to show that it, the sensitivity and specificity of the test characteristics are good enough. Uh, but the FDA hasn't fully vetted it yet. Um, and so we're all kind of flying under that guideline for emergency use authorization. Um, and that means that there's a lot of tests out there that may not be as good as others. Good information to have. And it certainly helps to kind of cut through a lot of the other things we're all hearing and reading. It's really hard to decipher what the truths are versus, you know, opinions and some of the other emotions that are coming into play when we, uh, when we talk about what all of this means. 
Um, so I wanted to have an opportunity to tell folks, especially I think in Washington, where maybe we aren't as familiar with Zoom care as, as our counterparts in Oregon. Zoom care has been around for many years, um, and they have more than 45 clinics throughout Washington and Oregon. And these clinics are what we, you know, refer to as kind of this near site, but really what it is are clinics where people can get same day appointments and Zoom Care is using great technology as well so that you can go to their app, schedule your appointment for that day, start out with a video chat. If you need to actually walk into one of their retail clinics, you can do that as well. And when I think about how someone like Zoom Care is positioned for where we are today, where the number of people who are accessing virtual care has exploded in the last three months, and the anticipation is that that trend will continue. We're going to see more people be pushed into this virtual system to limit how many people are coming into the clinics. And Zoom Care has an excellent infrastructure to do that, as well as some drive-through testing facilities. So when you're thinking about your policy and you're thinking about, you know, the people that maybe have that high temperature or they're having symptoms and they can't come into work, having a partnership and a trusted healthcare provider that you can easily and quickly refer your employees into, uh, I think is going to be a really crucial part of having this strong plan. Getting back to work or getting back to the workplace really as we should be referring to it is going to have new obstacles that we just haven't had to navigate yet. And it's going to take a lot of us all working together and thinking about new ways to solve some of these problems so that we can, you know, reconvene with some normalcy. So if you want to connect with Zoom Care, obviously you can do that through your partners at Propel um, directly. Everyone's available. That's been one of the things that I have really loved about this series um, and working with the providers and the uh, excellent creative folks at Zoom Care, there is a spirit of let's work together to help our community and use what we have to build, build something that will be beneficial to us all. So with that, um, we thank you for joining us today or if you are listening to this later, we are always welcoming your questions as you have them, and um, we thank you again for coming, and thank you for being part of our conversation today.